As we come, let's pray. Father God, we have read your word together. We ask now that you will speak to us through it. We pray that you will give us your message so that we can go forward into the week ahead, into the month ahead and into the year ahead, in the confidence of the love of Christ. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have been looking at any websites or newspapers over the past week or so, or indeed watching anything on television or listening to the radio, the top programme or the top item that there has been has been a look back at 2009. But most media outlets have been getting their money's worth and been looking back at the past 10 years to see what has been happening, what's been going on, how has our world changed in the past 10 years. And they're asking questions like who has been the most influential celebrity in the past 10 years? I find that one hard to answer. I don't know what you come up with for that. What has been the most life-changing gadget? If you're anyone like me, you could have a long list of what you think has been life-changing. Or what has been the most historic event in the past 10 years? Each poll came up with something different. There's polls about movies, polls about fashion, looking back, asking questions of society to see, well, where have we come? How have we changed in the past 10 years or so? Dave was up with the girls and boys talking about New Year's resolutions. That's something else we do at this time of year. But what is a resolution? Something we agree to do. How do we get to that point? Well, we ask questions of ourselves. We ask questions about our lifestyle, about how we do things as we live. And from that, we formulate what we think is going to be our New Year's resolution. I will be honest, I forgot about it. I don't know if anyone else did, but it hasn't crossed my mind yet to think of a resolution. Maybe I should. But have you made a resolution? Have you thought as 2010 comes in front of us, what are you going to do that you think is going to make your life better this year than it was last year? Questions. The start of a new year brings about questions in many shapes and in many forms. And we come to this passage as we start a series in Matthew's Gospel with a question. A question where a man comes and says to Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? A question I'm sure as we sit here this morning we have asked at some point in some shape or some form. Maybe not those exact words, but we've asked the question, what about eternal life? What would your answer be to that? Now, it's the kind of question that a teacher loves to ask because in our mind it's the most easiest of answers because we've just read it, it's there in the book. But sometimes we miss what is in the book and we start to think about what we like. We'll take a bit here, a bit there, throw it together and put forward our answer. What is your answer to the question about eternal life? How do we get eternal life? Well, the next 14 verses that we look at together in Matthew chapter 19 sees Jesus give the answer. Not only does he give the answer, he explains it. 
but he also gives assurance to us of what it takes to follow him as a disciple. So we look at this passage in three different sections to see what it says to us. Not thinking as we start this year, but it just so happens that the message fits well as we start and see what our resolutions will be for the year ahead. In verses 16 to 22, we are introduced to the rich young ruler. Matthew and Mark tell us that he is young, that he is rich, and that he is this ruler. Someone who would have been important in society. Someone who would have been respected. He had the money. He had the beautiful house with that money. But he had the position in society as well. And on top of all that, he had youth on his side. Probably an exception rather than the rule. You don't hear or read in the historical accounts of too many young rulers, but here he is. And he comes as a questioner, a seeker, someone looking answers. As we read the passage, we believe that he is genuine. He's not coming as many have done, and as we continue through the gospel accounts, come and try and trick and trap Jesus to make him slip up. To try and bring him down from what he claims to be. But he comes as a genuine person asking questions. He wants to know, genuinely wants to know what it takes to be a good Jew. To be someone not only respected in the community but respected by God. And of course in the Jewish tradition that would have been the end game for them. That idea of what eternity would be. An eternity with their Father God who had given them the commandments, the laws by which they should live. The mark of a good Jew. But he has a problem. He comes with pre-thinking. He has already put his own ideas into what the answer should be. He thinks that he is fine so far. That everything that he has done has been part of those steps that it takes to inherit eternal life. The problem is he comes believing that it is about what he does rather than about who he is. As we'll come to look at how he responds to Jesus, we'll see that he's about ticking things on the list, making sure that outwardly it can be seen that he is doing what is right. That is the mark that he's looking for. This mark that will set him aside as a good, respectable Jew where there's no question that he will receive eternal life. But he's forgetting or doesn't realise that it's about his person. That it is about who he is rather than what he does. Culturally, wealth was a sign of blessing. So those looking at this man would have no question that he would have inherited eternal life because this wealth was seen as a blessing from God. How else would he have been able to accumulate such money but God had been with him and had blessed his whole life with it. But he's not satisfied. It doesn't satisfy him. The path that he's already come along has not satisfied him because he continues to ask, what must I do? It is in his question that we see his intent. As we read through, he asks, well, what must I do? And Jesus comes back with the reply. He says in the verses, 
Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Jesus picks up on this word good. And that is the intent of the rich young ruler. He uses the word good. Whenever we think of something that is good, it's mainly on a, on a human superficial level of something is good or something is bad. We have more words in our language that can describe something that is greater than good. But here is this idea. Let's see what we can get that is good that will continue to make sure that I have eternal life. Jesus picks up it and says, but no one is good. No one is good but God. In the person of God, he is the ultimate measure of goodness. Everything that this young ruler should know about God should point him to what is good. Jesus says something that we probably find strange, but Jesus says, obey the commandments. Do what the law says. Live by law. Obey what you've been brought up. Trust in what you've been taught. The law was given by God to define righteousness. If you've ever tried to fully live the Ten Commandments, you will know that it's almost an impossible task to live each one at every moment of every day, to be pure, as the commandments would say. But yet, this young ruler says, I've done it. Christ lists commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and then commandment number 5, what we call the second table of the commandments. And then he adds in the command that we read in Leviticus 19, verse 18, and love your neighbor. He says, these I have kept. Since I was a youth, I have kept these commands. At this point, he's either a very good man or he is deluding himself. Because it is difficult, so difficult, to follow those commands. But he's not content. Even though he justifies himself to say, look, I've done it. Christ does not come back with a question. But the man is not content. He says, I still lack something. So what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus says, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. If you think what is in your possession at home, wherever you live, think of your place of work and the things that are there, whether you work for someone else or you work for yourself. All the possessions that we accumulate. And I would be a hypocrite if I didn't say I'm as guilty as the next man. Maybe my New Year resolution should be to stop looking at gadgets. Because I'm as materialistic as the next person. But Jesus told this man, go and sell everything. How would you feel if you were in this young ruler's shoes? Because if we're honest, we have the same cultural identity that if we have money, if we have possessions, we are seen as someone better than the next man simply by what we have. 
And Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. It's not about going and selling everything in your homes. But what it is about is giving 100% to God. Jesus knew the heart of this man. He knew that it was going to be the most difficult thing for him because he enjoyed his possessions. It was the test of being 100% committed to God. And this is what Jesus is getting at and making the point. He went away sad, that is, the rich young man, because he had great wealth. He had an idol to worship. That was everything that he had accumulated, everything that he had gathered, that he put his name on as his. Matthew 6 and verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Earlier in the gospel, Christ teaches that we cannot serve two masters. And this was the problem with the rich young ruler. He wanted the best of both worlds. He wanted to be assured of his eternal destination, but yet he wasn't willing to give 100% of everything of him to God. That is the story of the rich young ruler. In verses 23 to 26, Jesus continues thinking about this interaction as he is with his disciples. And he comes to the topic of the rich and how it will be in heaven. So he moves on to explain what this means. And he gives the most astonishing image, but yet we lose what its truth is. I've heard this quoted to me many times by my grandparents and parents at home, that a camel cannot pass through the eye of a needle. The most difficult task, the most impossible thing that we can think of. We don't see too many camels walking down the Upper Newton Arts Road. Well, not that I've seen anyway. But if you did, you would be in the shoes and the footsteps of the original hearers of this story. Because to them, a camel was used for everything of trade. It was the one thing that transported goods around the known world. Palestine was full of them. And of course, they would have known what a small needle was for the daily repairs that would have been needed on garments and clothing. For that camel, that cumbersome large object to pass through the eye of a needle was impossible. Let's take it forward to today, the largest moving thing we can think of. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure a jumbo jet or something, uh, a large cruise liner, passing through the eye of a needle. Are we starting to, to see the imagery of that? That how difficult it is because Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Probably the one question that we think of as we read this is, well, does that mean that rich people aren't going to be in heaven? Does it mean that those who have accumulated wealth either through their own ways or through blessing of God aren't going to be in heaven or have that opportunity? No, 
it doesn't because Jesus says it is difficult. It is hard for someone with money, with wealth to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Money is a hindrance. A lot of the times we think it's a great help as we have to go around daily and purchase what is needed to feed and clothe and shelter our families. But when we accumulate so much of it, it becomes a hindrance because it is a temptation. The reality is, whenever we have accumulated a, a mass amount of money or earthly possessions, we start trusting in them rather than in the provision of God. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This astonishes the disciples. Think back, as we said, that culturally a sign of wealth was a sign of blessing from God. They are now having their tables of their cultural world turned upside down. They assumed that anyone who was of great wealth would automatically be in the kingdom. But now they have to rethink this. And again, Jesus goes back to a heart issue. He comes to a verse that is quoted many times. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Whenever we look at the human condition, whenever we think about that answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To look at it with our own answers and our own solutions, it is impossible. Whenever we think of, of how God does his salvation work, we think it is, how can it be? How can it be possible? But yet, with God, all things are possible. Those who have been blessed with wealth only deal with it and are saved from sin by the grace of God. If you are someone who is blessed with a healthy bank account, it is only by the grace of God that saves you from the temptation of it. Just like it is the power of God that saves me from the temptation of sin and each of us from it. With God, all things are possible. That is the rich and heaven. Peter is mulling this over in his mind because he doesn't come generally from a very rich background. But he leads, it leads him to pursue an issue with Jesus. And so we move into the third section of this passage, verses 27 to 30, the rewards of discipleship. Because right at the start, Jesus says that the rich young ruler must leave, uh, sell everything and follow Christ. Following Christ, discipleship. So Peter, spokesman, spokesperson of the disciples, comes forward and says, But Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. We have given it all up. We have left businesses. We have left family. We have taken to the road where we do not know where our heads are going to fall tonight. We've left it all and we've followed you. He wants to know what will be in it for them. He wants to know what they're going to get out of this because of what they've sacrificed. And let's not be too harsh on Peter because it is a very human response. 
We all like fairness in the world. And Jesus goes on to list blessing upon blessing. Firstly, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth and that how the disciples will be part of that. Again, what every Jewish man and woman has been brought up to look forward to. Being a good Jew and receiving the inheritance of eternal life as they have lived a good life. So Jesus says, you will receive the new heaven and the new earth. Secondly, Jesus moves on to say how he is going to be set on the throne. How he is going to be raised and glorified. So there is the true Messiah. Something that the Jewish tradition has been looking for for centuries as it has been prophesied. Jesus says it will be here. Messiah in truth. Thirdly, they're promised a hundredfold compensation for leaving family and friends, where they will be repaid a hundred. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That's the fourth thing he promises, that they will receive it. Not only do they get the new heaven and the new earth, not only do they get the Messiah, not only do they have this hundredfold compensation, but Jesus comes to the, the answer of the original question, that they will receive eternal life because they have left everything and followed him. An upside down view giving up absolutely everything of ourselves and giving ourselves to God. Those who are first shall be last and those who are last shall be first. Is it a pecking order? No. But what it is, is it this idea that how the world looks at us, how they shun us and how they think that Christianity is, is worth nothing, that it is nothing, that it has no meaning, no truth. As they look and see us as lower than them, the tables will be turned. An upside down view, a principle that God put right there in the law, in Deuteronomy. A phrase that we have learned in college for the past three, three years bottom up biased to the poor a concept of where it is those who are needy those who are poor those who need from others are the ones who will be glorified who will be blessed so what can we say as we put these three things together the rich young ruler wealth and how that affects heaven and the rewards of discipleship well what must we do to inherit eternal life. The simple answer comes from this passage. Give everything that holds us. And give ourselves to God. What holds us? What hinders us? What stops us? Only you can answer that question for yourself. As I can only answer it for myself. Some things are small Little things that we meet every day on the road of life. Some are huge things that hinder our relationship. But there's compensation. 
We may think it is a hard life, a difficult life. It's difficult to give up what we enjoy. It is difficult to give ourselves 100%, lose control. That's not what we're taught. We're taught to be our own individual person. But God says, no, let me be your king. Give yourself over to me because the compensation for what the world sees that we lose will be a hundredfold. It will be the greatest blessings that we will ever know and the ultimate blessing of salvation. So what about those resolutions for 2010? The questions that we ask ourselves to see how we're going to have a better life or a better idea of what the future will hold for us in 2010. How about a resolution about being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ throughout this year? Committing and giving all of ourselves to God. Because as we do so as individuals, and then together as we join to do it as a community of worshippers, we will know blessing. Oh, there may be difficult times ahead, we don't know. But the blessing of being in unity with Christ and unity with each other is compensation enough so that we can go forward in hope and assurance of having the answer of what it is and what it takes to have and inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a land where we know your blessing. Lord, if we are honest with ourselves and with each other, we live in a comfortable world. We have an abundance of shops and supermarkets. We either have money in bank accounts or we have the facilities to get it. Lord, may we never take it for granted, but know that it is a blessing from you. But Father, may we never run after it so much that it becomes an idol, nor anything else. Lord, keep us close to you. Keep us in your way. Enable us, equip us, and help us to be your people, to be disciples. To give 100% knowing that there is a prize, that there is compensation, that there is the blessing of salvation waiting for us in its fullness as we long for that day when we will receive eternal life. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen.